it may or may not surprise you to learn that when I was at school, I was a goody two-shoes. I rarely ever got into trouble. But I actually did get into trouble in scripture or a special religious education. In primary school, uh, the teacher would have a, a masking tape cross right, right next to her. That's where the naughty kids had to sit. That was my spot. In high school, I got told off by the local minister who was uh, leading a, a small discussion group. I was a smart aleck in scripture. I was the type of kid who'd ask questions just to ruffle feathers because I didn't believe it. And while I never asked this question, I wasn't clever enough to, I was like the kid who asked, can God create a rock that he can't pick up? And uh, the response to that question, well, if God could create a rock that he couldn't pick up, he'd probably drop it on your head. It seems like a fitting answer to the question. It's a, it's a ridiculous question, isn't it? Because God is infinitely powerful and the whole universe is in his hands. For God to create something that he couldn't move, well, that's just silly. But this question and my questions, they expose something about me. They, they came from a place of not really wanting to know, uh, but rather to, to show off, to try and put the scripture teachers in their place. But had I known the power of God, I would have asked a different question, a more important question, a question that we all need to answer. Now, over the past few weeks, as we've been going through Luke, uh, we've seen the significance of Jesus as God's promised king coming into Jerusalem. We've seen the authority of Jesus as someone who should be listened to. Well, today in Luke, we see a group of people acting like smart aleck kids, and not with the scripture teacher, but with Jesus himself. And we see that Jesus has the question that we should be asking. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20 uh, from verse 27. And what we see in the section that we're looking at today is we see that the Sadducees have a question and Jesus answers that question. And then we see that Jesus has a question and then we're going to think about, well, what should our answer to that question be? So let's first look at the Sadducees' question. The Sadducees' question is about the life to come. And what's interesting about this question is that the Sadducees are a religious group who don't believe in the life to come. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, the Sadducees only followed the law in the first five books of the Bible. And in verse 27, one of their core beliefs is that they say that there is no resurrection, no life after death. No heaven, no immortality. And so they come to Jesus with a question about the life to come. They want to stump Jesus. They want to ask the question that no one can answer. It's the can God create a rock that no one can pick up question. See, they're kind of wanting to have their Carl Stefford, I can't say his name, Carl Stefford, the Today Show host. I didn't see it, but it was all over the news where Carl caught the treasurer, Jim Chalmers, off guard when asking about capital gains tax and whether the government plans to increase that tax or not. And Carl got exactly what he wanted. He got a treasurer who was caught off guard, who didn't really, wasn't really prepared to answer the question, and it made Carl look good. 
Well, that's what the Sadducees want to do with Jesus. They want to make Jesus look weak and they want to make themselves look good. And so they come up with this cracker question, uh, which is why we had Deuteronomy 25 read out. Uh, You might have been wondering about that. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 is about the duty of a brother to marry his brother's childless widow. The whole practice seems a bit strange to us today, uh, but it was commonly practiced in the ancient world. And this law in Deuteronomy 25, it actually protected the widow uh, by offering her economic security and physical protection. And it also ensured that the husband's name wouldn't be snuffed out because the firstborn son would then take on the name of the deceased husband. And in the Sadducees' mind, this was how people lived on, through their name surviving beyond their generation. And so the Sadducees pose a hypothetical question in verse 28. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The same happens with the second brother. Then in verse 31, the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. I think if you're going to be the seventh husband there, you'd wonder about your life expectancy. Then finally, in verse 32, the woman dies. And then here comes the question. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now, they're asking, presuming there is no afterlife, just like the smart aleck kid. But they don't know the power of God. The question reveals something of the Sadducees' intent towards Jesus. They want to expose Jesus as someone who really isn't that good. They want to cut Jesus down. And so the problem here is not that they're asking Jesus a question. The problem here is the intent with which they're asking the question. It's an issue of a hard heart before God. And this question also reveals that the Sadducees think pretty highly of themselves. There's an arrogance to the question. I bet Jesus hasn't thought of this. This one will get him. It's like they're playing devil's advocate, but they're closer actually to being the devil's advocate than they thought. The hypothetical question is extreme, but what Jesus shows them in his answer is that they do not know the true God. They have misunderstood what the scriptures say about the life to come, and they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know that he is Lord. So we've seen the Sadducees' question, and we see that it actually reveals a lot about them. Well, let's look at Jesus' answer. Jesus sets the record straight. Uh, But rather than give a smart aleck answer like, well, how about you become the eighth husband and find out? That'd be my temptation. Instead, Jesus graciously reveals to us a picture of what the life to come will be like. Jesus answers with truth and grace. And maybe you've watched the show Q&A before, the show where they ask questions of a panel of guests. I used to watch it regularly when I was studying at Bible college. And one episode stood out to me. It was the one where they had a John Lennox on, and he's an English Christian apologist. And John was being asked some very hard questions about God, to which his answers were generally ignored. He was often interrupted. They tried to paint him as someone who was taking the morally high ground. The questions were often of an attacking nature. But each and every time, he answered the question with truth and grace. 
He didn't let them get the better of him. And that's what Jesus does here. He answers with truth and grace. And let's have a look at his answer. First, Jesus tells us that marriage is for this life, not the life to come. In verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage, as we know it, will cease. And that's because marriage in the life to come is between Christ's church and Christ. And that's what our marriage in this age points to. And if the Sadducees had known this, well, they'd realised that their question wasn't as smart as they thought. The widow will not be married to any of the seven brothers. Instead, in heaven, there's going to be an intimacy of relationship with the church and with Jesus that we can only glimpse now as we do church here uh, in this age. So that's the first thing Jesus says. The second thing that Jesus tells us is that, that in the life to come, there is no death. Verse 36, And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. There is life after death, and it is unending. Not only will our relationships be different, but our bodies will be different. Jesus says that like the angels, our bodies will never die. There's going to be no cemeteries in heaven, no tombstones, no funerals, no morgue, no wills, no funeral directors, because there's going to be no death. Our heavenly bodies, whatever they look like, will never die. The third thing that Jesus says, which is the nail in the coffin for the Sadducees, which is God is the God of the living. Verse 37, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Now Jesus goes back to Moses here because the Sadducees base their life and doctrine in the first five books of the Bible. And in Exodus where Jesus is quoting, that is in the first five books of the Bible. Now Abraham died and Isaac died and Jacob died and they were buried. Yet God is their God because they still exist. They are still alive because God is the God of the living. There is an age to come. Now in verse 39, the teachers of the law who agree with Jesus say, well, well said, Jesus. They recognise his answer with grace and truth and he also happened to agree with their position as well. But then you see in verse 40, no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Jesus' wisdom, knowledge and authority has silenced them. He's revealed to the Sadducees that they do not believe in the power of God. They do not believe the scriptures. That their question is coming from the wrong place. So what can we learn here from this question that the Sadducees posed and Jesus' answer? Well, kind of incidentally, we learn about the life to come, don't we? We learn that there is life after death. 
The God that we worship through the Lord Jesus is the same as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the living. Our bodies decay and get old. You know the saying, body's not what it used to be? Well, apparently everyone over 40 is aware of it. Well, our bodies eventually die, don't they? Jesus, even as he says these words, he's going to Jerusalem to die. But he also knows that death won't have the last word. Because on the third day, Jesus will rise from the dead, raised by the power of God. Death will be beaten and eternal life will be possible. God is the God of the living. And so we can ask ourselves this question, is are we living with the expectation that God is the God of the living? Are we living knowing that this age that we live in, this world that we live in is just temporary, that there is a, a world to come that is going to last for all eternity? If you count the years of your life, uh, the average age of death in Australia, according to the ABS, uh, from 2018 to 2020 is 81.2 years for males and 85.3 years for females. Uh, let's just hypothetically say that you're going to live that long. You take those 80 years and you compare them to eternity. It's like taking one step and then comparing that one step to how many steps it would take for you to go walk around Australia 100,000 times. You just can't do it. We can't really comprehend eternity, but that is the reality. And so we need to make sure that when Jesus says that it's those who are counted worthy, that we are counted worthy of the life to come. And the way that we do that is by trusting Jesus. We don't seek to be worthy of the age to come just by being good. You know, on the same Q&A episode with John Lennox, one of the other guests of the show said, Definitely being a good person is the ideal. And she put being a good person over and above any belief that someone might have. And lots of people hold this view that being good enough is good enough for God. But actually, to be worthy of eternity requires us not just to be good. It requires us to be perfect. And we fall short of being perfect. We fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned except Jesus. And so to be counted worthy is not about us being good enough. It requires us to believe in Jesus, the Lord of the resurrection, to know that he died in our place to forgive our sins so that we could have his righteousness. And this is what Jesus gets at with his question, which he asks, which we'll look at in a moment. But before we look at Jesus' question, we also see something else that is worth taking note of. And that is, it's really silly to try and stump Jesus with a clever question. For us to approach Jesus or to approach God and think that we're going to somehow come out on top. That's just foolish. Jesus will always respond in grace and truth but he will also respond in a way that exposes us, that shows our inner heart. And Jesus, in his answer to the Sadducees, demonstrated this. He demonstrated, didn't he, that they didn't know the scriptures, that they didn't know the power of God, that they got it all wrong. And Jesus actually kind of left them a bit 
embarrassed, didn't he? And silenced before the crowds. It's better to approach Jesus with humility than arrogance. So we've seen the Sadducees' question to try and trick Jesus. We've seen Jesus answer with grace and truth. Well, now we see Jesus' question. What is Jesus' question going to reveal about him? And it's a cracker. Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Uh, The word Messiah is a word that means God's anointed king, of which King David in Israel was one. And in Jesus' time, the Messiah was the king that the people were hoping and waiting for to bring them salvation. In many people's minds, it meant uh, freeing them from being under Rome, once again being an independent nation. And where it says here, the son of David, that means that uh, this king, this Messiah, is going to be in the line of David. Now that's assumed knowledge. Everyone agrees with that. The tricky part of the question comes when Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Uh, You might remember if you were here in January, Nathan opened up the truths of Psalm 110 for us and showed us how it points directly to Jesus. Well, here Jesus' question helps us to see that this psalm is indeed talking about him. Verse 42, David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then the cracker question, verse 44. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Do you see the tricky bit? King David, the ruler of God's people at the time, says that the Lord, that is God, said to my Lord, which is someone else, someone who is ruling over King David. David was the ruler of a world power. He was not a subjugated king. Apart from God, he didn't have another king over him. And yet he wrote this psalm saying that God said to his Lord, said to his king. And to add to that, this Lord is also his son. A king would not defer their authority to their children unless they were going to abdicate the throne. And so it's puzzling. The question is, who is this Lord? And Jesus is just happy to let the question sit there. He doesn't seek to answer it. He just lets the people listening puzzle over it. How frustrating would that be? You know when someone tells you a riddle and then they refuse to give you the answer? It's frustrating, isn't it? I could demonstrate that to you now, but I don't want to frustrate you. Thankfully, though, as we look at Jesus' question, we don't have to be left without an answer. Who is this Lord? Because the Bible answers this for us. One place that the Bible answers this for us is in Acts. The Apostle Peter, filled with the Spirit, speaking at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 onwards. He also references Psalm 110. And he's talking about how Jesus has risen from the dead. 
and how God has raised him and seated him at God's right hand. And he quotes Psalm 110 to say that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one with all authority. He is the one for whom all enemies will become his footstool. See, in fact, Psalm 110 only really makes sense when we realise that Jesus would rise from the dead. And the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, they never had a chance of understanding it. And so Jesus reveals the question, the question the Sadducees should be asking, the questions that we should be asking. Who is this Lord? Well, in Acts, we see that the answer is Jesus. And so what Jesus does here is he actually shows that the Sadducees are asking the wrong question. They shouldn't be asking about crazy hypotheticals they've made up with God's law. They should be asking, who is the Lord? The same with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law who have all been trying to trick Jesus. They're asking the wrong question. And it's possible for us too to ask the wrong question of Jesus. Sometimes we we use questions as an excuse, don't we? If we don't know the answer to something, we go, well, I won't do this because I don't have an answer for this. Maybe the Sadducees thought the same. Well, we don't have an answer for this. If Jesus doesn't have an answer for this, well, we're not going to listen to him. Do you have a list of endless questions that you need answered before you will commit to following Jesus as your Lord? Do sometimes your questions stop you from believing the truth of the Scriptures? Do they stop you from living in obedience to Jesus? Well, if they are, let Jesus' question expose your heart. Do you want to know the answer to the question? Do you want to know that Jesus is Lord? The Sadducees didn't. And so Jesus has posed this question, who is the Lord? And we've seen the answer. But what is your answer? Is Jesus your Lord? And how you answer this question will reveal your heart before Jesus. Do you recognize that Jesus is your anointed king? Is he ruler over your life? See, to acknowledge this, you have to acknowledge that Jesus has been risen from the dead, that he is seated at God's right hand. Because a a dead king doesn't have any authority. Our Queen Elizabeth, who will be remembered in history as one of the Commonwealth's great queens, can no longer rule, can no longer express her will. In death, she no longer has authority. But a living king does have authority. And Jesus is a living king and he has authority because God has raised him from the dead. Jesus is the one whom God the Father has exalted above all. He is the one that every knee is going to bow down to. And once we realize who Jesus is, it is crucial that we do bow our knee to him. That we say to Jesus that every part of me, of my life, my career, my family, my achievements, my finances, my character, my identity, my time is yours, Jesus, because you are my king. 
The king demands nothing less from us than this. Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And in return, he gives us eternal life. He forgives our sin. He brings us into relationship with God himself. He promises us that we will be with him in the life to come. Jesus is a good king. He is a king that is worthy of us giving our everything to, of being able to deny ourselves for. And so is Jesus your Lord? And maybe this morning you're here and you profess that Jesus is your king. You claim you're a Christian. Well, how are you going with living as Jesus as your king? How are you going at listening to Jesus' words and putting them into practice? Maybe you're not going well at that at the moment. Well, let the fact that Jesus is Lord encourage you. Jesus is the king who died for your sin, who was raised for your eternal life. He is a king that knows what we need when we need it, a king who can comfort us. He is a king that is worth living for. A king that is worth repenting for and turning back to him. He's a good and gracious king. Or maybe you're here today and you're holding something back from Jesus. You you live with Jesus as king with these parts of your life over here, but there's just this part over here that you're kind of holding on to for yourself. (coughs) An area of your life where you don't really want Jesus' influence. Or maybe there's a sin that you're holding on to. Well, let the fact that Jesus is Lord encourage you. Jesus is a better ruler than you are. And he knows what is best. And if you give that thing that you're holding on to, if you let Jesus become the ruler of that, you won't regret it. See, Jesus is not like one of the bad kings in Israel, like King Ahab who killed one of his God-fearing people because he wanted a vineyard. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is a good king. A king that when we submit to him, who blesses us beyond, beyond what we can imagine, he promises us eternal blessings in the life to come. And maybe you're here today and you're diligently seeking to live with Jesus as your king. You've made sacrifices for this king each and every day. Well, let the fact that Jesus is Lord encourage you. You've made the right call. Jesus is the king of this age and of the age to come and he won't let you down. He will do what he has promised. He he will do what he has promised to do. He will bring you in the age to come. And so if you trust Jesus, if you're living with him as your Lord, your King, you're worthy because Jesus makes you worthy. Be encouraged 
Jesus is a king worth serving. Is Jesus your Lord? So today we've seen a question from the Sadducees that reveals their heart before God. We've seen an answer from Jesus full of grace and truth that shows that we need to believe in the power of God. We've seen Jesus ask a question, the question that we should all be asking. Who is our Lord? And then we need to think about our answer. Is he your Lord? I'm, I'm thankful that I'm still not that kid in Scripture whose questions that revealed that I was just being a smart aleck that didn't believe in God's power, that didn't acknowledge that Jesus was king. I'm I'm so thankful that Jesus has revealed to me the answer of who he is because it is such a privilege to know the Lord of all eternity. It's such a privilege to know that I'm going to be in the life to come. And I know that in this room I'm not the only person who has that privilege and we can praise God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has a way of revealing our hearts, that his words are pierced them and reveal to us our sinfulness and our desperate need for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus died on the cross for us. We were unworthy. He was worthy, and yet he died in our place so that we could become worthy. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to be people who live with Jesus as our King in every aspect of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.